0: The flavors, and then you add it onto a certain culture, it gets really, really personal. Then you've got you've got smell. I remember the uh, that Lydia was wearing the first time I met her, and I usually don't like perfumes. You know, it's that chemical type smell. It's like a rank candle that, you know, you know what I'm talking about, man. Gives you a screaming headache, a little bit of nausea. That Oh, but it smells like persimmons. It, it's gross. But I remember the perfume that she was wearing. It was one of the first ones, probably the only one that I ever liked. And if she ever quits wearing it, I'll be offended. Well, today we're talking about the altar of incense. And the function of it is remarkable with smell. It's unusual to find it here in the temple, this place of, of worship. You've got, you've got the altar of sacrifice outside. You've got the table of showbread. You've got the candles. You've got the, got the Ark of the Covenant inside. And then in the middle, right in front of this big, thick curtain, the closest, closest to the Ark of the Covenant, you've got this thing that is for smell. In one of the commentaries I read this week, by Riken, he noticed that it's remarkable that they even bothered to call it an altar. There's no sacrifice really made on it. They don't kill something and put it on it. But its design was like the big altar outside. It was just smaller. This one was gold. That one was, the one outside was bronze. It was used at the same time every day. There was a close connection between the two altars in both their design and their function. And that connection between those two altars served as this daily reminder that that this altar represents an altar of prayer and going before God depends on having a sacrifice for sin outside. Let's turn to Exodus 30. Exodus 30. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length. A cubit shall be its breadth. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. You shall make a molding of gold around it, and you'll make two golden rings for it under its molding on two opposite sides of it. You shall make them, and they shall be holders for the poles with which you will carry it, you'll make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of testimony, in front of the mercy seat that's above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it every morning when he dresses the lamps, he'll burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he'll burn it. A regular incense offerings before the Lord throughout your generations you shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or burnt offering or grain offering you shall not pour a drink offering on it Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement he shall make the atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations it is most holy to the Lord and then if you jump down to verse 34 The Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stacte, and onica, and galbanum, sweet spices and with pure frankincense. Of each there shall be an equal part, and make it incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small, and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting, where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make, according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It will be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from the people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use your word this morning. I pray that you uh, you would be honored in the preaching of your word and that it would have its effect I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so the incense altar, it was smaller than the bronze altar. Uh, It was 18 inches by 18 inches by about three feet. And it, it was kind of the same design of the ark, more particularly like the table, made of acacia wood, surfaced with gold. But like the bronze altar, it had these rounded Corner protuberances coming up from a golden lip around it. It had these, they called it, referred to as the horns. And like the table, it had a decorative molding that would kind of hold the incense on it. And it had the gold rings that the poles would run through so that it could, it could be carried. And it stood in the holy place. More specifically, right in front of the curtain that's before the Ark of the Testimony. It's the closest piece of furniture there is to the ark. So, this it almost seems arbitrary, but we want to look at what what the purpose of it is. What does it symbolize? Well, what you find mostly is that it's a symbol of prayer. In Psalm 41, 1 through 2, David says, O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So there we start to find that reference to, to, um, to incense and prayer. In Revelation, in Revelation 5, Revelation 5, 8, it really starts to come out. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a heart and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And then in Romans 8, 3 and 4. And another angel came and stood at the altar with golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar. Before the throne, and the smoke of the incense, with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. So, you see that that prayer, and then in Numbers uh, 16, in and in punishment, there's a plague running through the children of Israel. And you see Aaron going through the camp with his censer, stopping the plague. It's this. It's as it goes up before God. So prayer is heavily. Is heavily connotated in there. But it's not just prayer. There's more than that. As you go through the Bible, it's broader and deeper than that. It's more what, it more signifies what prayer represents. Us going before God. And then there's the fact that it's equated to a pleasure. A pleasure like a pleasant smell. That's remarkable because we tend to see prayer as letters of petition and complaint, more like administrative issues that need to be dealt with. But this is a different picture that we see. It's God as the creator enjoying his creation so much that he has elaborately provided a way for us to be connected to him. It's closest to the holy place. It goes up. The smoke of it goes up in front of the altar. In Leviticus 16, 18, it's referred to as the altar that is, the the altar of incense is referred to as the altar that is before the Lord. It's the face-to-face communication. And we see that it's a sweet smell to the Lord. It's personal to Him. He likes it when His people come before Him. But this brings up a question. Does God acknowledge and hear the prayers of an unbeliever? That's kind of a tough question, but as you go through this and you look at it, and you look at the process and the seriousness of it, that question comes up. So does God hear the prayers of people who aren't saved, who aren't washed in the blood? So as we go through this, I want that question to kind of be in the front of your mind. The next thing we see in the passage is this atonement on the altar. The atonement of sins, on, the atonement for sins on this altar of prayer. So atonement, if you break down the word just kind of crudely, it's, it's kind of convenient to think of it as, as being at one with God, at-one-ment. You know, you've been made right with God. You can be at one with God. The literal translation in Hebrews from the word Kippur, and it's means to cover. It's a covering. And this atonement we see commanded here. In Leviticus, it talks about how it's done. First, the high priest sprinkled blood on the mercy seat, showing that Israel's sins were covered. Then God said, He shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it talking about the high priest, Aaron, at this point. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it, on, put it on all the horns of the altar. He'll sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times to cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. That's in Leviticus 16, 18 and 19. So in order for a sinful people to stand before a holy God, they needed to be cleaned. Absolutely necessary. God can't tolerate imperfection or else He would not be perfect. Goes to stands to reason. Something that tolerates imperfection cannot be perfect. Something that's a little bit bad can't be fully good. And this action, this atoning for sins on the altar, this, all of this work of blood, the blood that comes from the sacrifice that was made outside, it shows that even that not even our prayers are acceptable to God unless our sins are forgiven. And in order to approach this inner altar of prayer, the work has to have been done on the, outside of the, on the outside altar. And it was to be done by a priest. No one else could do it. And this priest had to be extensively cleansed, had to be ritually clean to do it. Um, Tradition says that, as last week Jeremy talked about the bells around their robes that the priest wore when they went to make an offering, and historically they would keep a cord tied to their leg or to their waist, and if the bells stopped ringing, that means that he wasn't properly prepared and purified. God struck him dead. Well, they couldn't go into the holy place because they were unclean. They had the rope, and they would pull his carcass out of there. So, you know, tug on the rope twice if you're still alive. Make the bells ring or something. And I I don't know biblically that this was ever done, but we know historically that this this was something that they did to be prepared for that. The only way that the prayers of the people would be acceptable, pleasing, that they would smell good to God as if it came up through this blood. They put the blood, the blood on the horns of the altar. And that smoke, that smell had to rise up through the blood. From being surrounded by the blood of atonement, of, a t- of covering, sin had to be taken care of before you could come to God. The blood meant that the entry fee to the presence of God had been paid for, and paid for with life the most precious commodity on earth. And then the next thing we see is no strange incense. And even going on in 34 to 38, you see that very specific, very specific ingredients that you're supposed to use. This had to be done how God commanded it to be done. Using the specific ingredients Commanded, no freestyling. He had a specific way that he that God had told. This is how you are to come to me through this blood of atonement by a priest that had been purified, as acting as as the uh, intercessor. This priest been ritually cleansed, putting blood on the altar. A specific, a very specific ingredient to be used only at this time. It wasn't, it wasn't how just you felt like it, how you wanted to do it. We have to come to God in worship, in prayer, in the state that he tells us to. I found a quote this week regarding this. The worship that God accepts is not the worship that man invents, but the worship that God prescribes. If you look at, pretty loosely, the things that we do here, the stuff that we that we carry on and carry out, whether it's praising, praying, or preaching the Word of God, or communion, or baptism, we do these things basically because this is what has been laid before us. There is liberty in there, but basically... We're coming to God in the ways that we have been taught through the Bible. You know, We don't, we don't like to be seen as orthodox, too traditional or legalistic in this modern world, but there's, we, we see it as, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of people in the world. There's a lot of different kinds of situations, a lot of different people coming to God in different ways. And if you come out and say that, well, no, there, there's one way that you're acceptable to God, well, then you're intolerant. But the funny thing is, is we don't accept that in any other area of our life, except for in spiritual places. So, you take a little kid, say, so I'm going to teach you how to read. So, here is the alphabet and a bunch of numbers. Get after it. Whatever you come up with is fine, as long as you can read it. No, we're, we're pretty intolerant to that. There's a way it needs to be done. There's a proper way to do that. What about a doctor making a medical diagnosis. Like, I, got, I, got, I got this thing. I got this thing and I need to get it fixed. Like, well, you know, why, why don't you, you go home and what kind of feels right to you and get that taken care of, you know. Just kind of however you feel like you need to take care of that cancerous tumor. No, there's a way that it's to be handled. But when we come to spiritual things, oh, don't be, don't be intolerant but let's, let's not be too intolerant. And the seriousness of it kind of fades at that level. But here we see that there is there's no counterfeit. There's not a replacement. Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that we will worship Him, that His believers will come to worship Him, not in the temple, but in spirit and in truth. So, Spirit and truth. There's the reality of God, or rather the reality of what God has done in you to change you, will come out as worship. So the reality, there's truth. Spirit and truth, there's truth. The reality of God, of what God has done in you to change you, there's the work of the Spirit, will come out as worship. And your worship reflects the reality of God's work in you. That's a little sobering. Your worship, how you interact with God and the sincerity of it, the reality of it, reflects the reality of what God has done in you. We have a lot of counterfeit worship around us today. You could argue, and it has been argued, that most of human life is worship. One way or another, to something or another. And you show it by how you live, what you live for, what eats up your life. But we tend to get the ingredients wrong. You know, we start maybe with how we want our relationship with God to make us feel about ourselves. What do I want to get from this relationship? Maybe I want a little extra power. Maybe I want a little extra security, maybe I want a little extra money. Or we use it, we use our, uh, our worship of God or our attendance in church to make sure that we look right to others or that it checks some traditional spiritual box. And then our worship fails to be a response to a real biblical experience of the work of God, of the work of God in us. And then it tends to be much more of a reflection of ourselves and our culture. These are the wrong ingredients of true worship, of truly coming before God. So then what what is the right ingredient? Is what produces godly, God honoring prayer and worship? Well, one thing it's knowing God in reality. Focusing on God, seeing who He is, then leads to this realization of who we are, that we need Him, and most importantly, that we don't measure up to Him. And then, that He provided a way Himself for us to be right with Him. That should draw worship from someone. That should be at the core of worship, not the fact that somebody got up and played music. Oh, they're playing music we worship. that That's... Backwards, that's wrong. That tends to be what we do. It's just another part of the Sunday morning thing that we do. We call that worship. If it just comes from that, we're in the wrong spot. It has to come from a reality. It has to be a reflection of something that we actually know to be true. And someone that has been changed by God will worship Him. Someone who thinks that it's significant that I have been made right with God, You want to change the way you worship God? You want to change that connection with what you do in this church? You have to get in touch with the reality of what God has done with you. I'm afraid that to far too many of us, the work of God on the cross is just another little attachment to our lives. And it's not this core change that changes everything else about you, that, that changes even your value system. That draws worship from someone, and it will from someone who has sincerely come to know Christ by faith and repentance. Then in verse 32, he tells these people not to take this home and use it for their own pleasure, and that it is for God. There's several ways to think about this. Where I've come down is using the worship of God as just another thing that you prefer, like the little things in your home can tend to take away from the seriousness of who He is. And I I think that that's the pathway to counterfeit worship, the loss of the gravity of God. God is more than one of the things in your life. Whether you believe it or not, whether you subscribe to that thinking or not, it's still true. He is the thing in the universe, if I can say it like that. He's not just one of the little things in your life. He is the thing that everything is created around, is shaped around. If you think about it, if none of it's an accident, if He is provident, if He is sovereign, And if He created it for His glory, that is the thing that is being done through all of creation, through all of the Bible, from the beginning to the end. He's going to do it well. So you get your life in line with that, and then your value system will change. And what happens when your value system changes, the very substance of what makes you happy will change. It's, it's not about all of these little things. It's about this one thing, the glory of God being accomplished in the earth. And guess what? Is it maybe going to get done? Is it probably going to happen, we hope? The Bible tells us it's a done deal. Why in the world wouldn't you line your life up with this thing that is a done deal? Then what can, what can take away... What gives you joy? This is just, this is what happens whenever you come to grips with the gravity of God, of who God is, of what He's doing in the world. We, w- we want to be happy people. We want to be made happy. Raise your kids, I just want them to be happy. Well, there's really only one thing. There's really only one way. There's really only one pathway. Everything else by comparison, will let you down horribly. Your relationships will fall apart. Your money will not be satisfying. Your kids will grow up to disappoint you as you grew up to disappoint your parents. And eventually, you will age to the point to where your body falls apart and you die. But if you've got it in your mind that the goal of all of this is that God is to be glorified in my life, in my death, in the display of who He is. All of the rest of that stuff just sheds off. It becomes significantly less. You don't know how somebody can live their whole life absolutely happy. You want to know how somebody can give up their life, go halfway around the world to die for the gospel, and be like, "To die is gain." That's how. That's how. Okay, back on track. So, how serious is counterfeit to God? Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. I'm going to read it real quick. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, the very first sons of the very first high priest that God himself put in place. Nadab and Abihu, each took his censer, and put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered it unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Yikes. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are Near me, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, set apart, holy, significant. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, not just those who are near me, and before all the people, I will be glorified. Then the next few words is heartbreaking, but very telling. Among those who are near me, I'll be sanctified. Before all the people, I will be glorified. Then it says, And Aaron held his peace. He just lost his two sons. But the gravity was with him to where I I know this is important. This is serious. They didn't take it serious. I'm not going to argue with God. And Aaron held his peace. He's not going to be near to all, but He is going to be glorified before all. Everybody in the camp knew that this happened. And everyone knew about it, and everyone took the lesson home. The sons of the high priest got zapped because they did not come before God in the right way. Proverbs 4 says, There is a way. Which seems right to a man. No, that's pretty good. That's that's I think this is the way I'm going to do this, that I'm gonna go. But you know the rest of the verse Leads to destruction. You translate it, but the end I think the King James translates it, but the end thereof is death. We approach God on God's terms. And God's terms are only through the blood of Christ can you come near. So we see only God's people have access to Him. So, does God acknowledge the prayers of non-Christians? We know He hears everything, but does He hear them with a view to answering them? Okay, so Proverbs 15:18, or 15:8 says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. James 5.16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Well, that just stands the question who is upright, who is righteous. It's pretty clear that no one is. Only those who have repented of sin and have come to faith in Christ. And only then are they righteous on Christ's merit. That is the sacrifice. That is the ultimate atonement. That is the blood. So do you see that this great thing, this big thing that God has done to bring us to Him? That this communication with Him is extremely important to Him. He's the one that set it up. He made it possible. This isn't the the Israelites out in the desert tinkering. Saying, we've we got to get to God. Let's try a few things. Oh, he got zapped. Let's try this. Yeah, that didn't work. Th- this isn't trial and error saying we've got to get to this deity. We, we've got to, you know, let's kill 50 virgins. Let's sl- slaughter 100 bulls. Let's, let's do a few things and see if we can get the attention of this deity because we, we need him. God did this, this is God's idea. He showed him these things. He said, here, do this. This is the way you do it. He initiated even the possibility of a relationship with him. And then, on top of that, he set up this system. And then we see the great part. He sent his son to be the ultimate sacrifice so that we can commune with the very God of the universe. Not only that, but now Christ stands as our high priest. And intercedes for us himself, for his people, that he bought with his blood. That high priestly prayer that Matt read this morning, that's what it's about. He is the priest now, going in before God. He's the priest. He's the sacrifice. He was the only one pure enough. And he goes in and he offers a prayer to God. Keep those that you have given me. Is it a maybe? Is it, is it an if? Is Christ's prayer to God, uh, well, maybe, hopefully He'll do that. It's a sure thing, it's a, it's a solid yes. He says, Keep those that you've given me. Yep, done. Consider it done. Stamp it. So, my question is if God has done this big earth moving thing to bring us to Him, Can you imagine what a slap in the face it would be to Christ to imagine that someone who's not under this blood can have the same access just because they're sincere, desperate enough? There's a, there's a couple of arguments where people say, I'm not really a Christian, I don't Go to church, really? I don't. I've never read the Bible. I, I, I've never really consider myself a Christian on some levels, but you know. But when my kid got sick, I prayed, and God turned it around. Well, realistically, what happened is there were Christians praying. And God and His providence moved forward the way He was anyway. We just don't find it anywhere in the Bible, except for the prayer of repentance, the first prayer of repentance coming to God, where there is this open access. It is actually the opposite. It's that it is very, very, very important that humans come before God through the blood. And as, as if God set this up this elaborately, then it would be a slap in his face to, for there to be a loophole, a back door, just because, well, I was so sincere and desperate. Look at Hebrews 14, 4, 14 through 16. Since we then have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, You know why we say in Jesus' name at the end of our prayer? It's a habit. It's a good habit, but it's significant. In Jesus' name, amen. That in Jesus' name is the blood on the horns of the altar. It's the blood on the horns of the altar. I have a theory. I think the horns of the altar actually curved in over the incense so that as it went up, it actually passed... Through the smoke actually passed through the blood. That's what that in Jesus' name is. It's this is through the blood of Christ that I have come to you. Something else we see is that there is very regular incense, morning and night. I imagine that there was smoke constantly going up from this altar of incense. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, actually Ephesians 6.18 first, it says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplications. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Just pray all the time. Then in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Rejoice always. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Prayer is supposed to be constant. This doesn't mean that, you know, you starve to death on your knees until you die. It's well, I prayed all the time. That's the far, far literal way to take that. But it does mean that you are in an attitude of prayer where you can't imagine not prayer not being a significant part of your life, or where you're continually breathing a prayer, where that's absent. I've noticed as I've gotten older, I don't know if it's that there are more situations in your life where God's got to come in on this one, or if it's always been that way and I'm just getting to where I realize it more, but I've noticed myself more and more in the middle of something, well, I, I have got to have God. To work through this little situation because I'm i out of my depth. Like I said, there's more of those situations all the time. And it's like what comes to mind, it's not this big, long, elaborate 30-minute prayer. It's a, oh, Lord. And it happens all the time. But there's something in you that says, I, I, I need God to come to bear on this. It's supposed to be in an attitude of prayer. I think that's part of sanctification where you're like, I just... I just need God. I need God. I come up short everywhere. I'm more of a sinner than I ever thought I was. I'm more deficient in every way that I ever thought of. I just need God. And then you're persistent. So when you're persistent in prayer, in bringing a matter before God, here's what happens. Your focus... Turns fully on God. Now you're watching what He's doing. When you pay attention to what God is doing, your perspective starts to change. And then what you want starts to change because you've been keeping your eyes on God. And then the way you pray begins to change. So do you think that prayer is you making God realize your problems? That I got, I got to get His attention. God, I don't think you see what's going on here. I need you to be aware of this. Is it the squeaky wheel gets the grease? Is that, is that what it is? Like, oh, my goodness, he's bothering me so much. Is prayer you changing God's plans because you did the cosmic version of sincere puppy dog eyes? Like, oh, he really wants it. He, uh, you know, I, I'll answer his prayer. Or this question. If we believe that God is sovereign, why pray? God knows what He's going to do anyway. We find this tension between prayer and providence. So you see verses like the effectual, fervent prayer. And then verses like He knows the end from the beginning. And then you see the story of, that, that Jesus told, I think it was a parable, talking about prayer. The guy comes to his, his friend's house in the middle of the night and says, hey, I, I need some bread. Like, I just got the kids down. That's, that's, that's what happens there. The Bible says, I'm already in bed. My kids are in bed. I just got the kids down. Leave me alone. But the guy, I, I, need, I need something to eat. Come on, man. And Jesus says, well, because of his persistence, he gets what he wants. Why do we hang on God's ear? Nothing we have is an inconvenience for him. He knows exactly what we need. He's going to do his will. He's going to accomplish his mission. Well, a quick answer is that God has chosen. God has chosen to do his work through prayer. You ever tell your kids, "Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at my face. Look, look at my face." Now say it again. <laughs> I don't know. Everybody does it. You, you get a hold of that little booger's face, and their eyes are like this. I I, I don't like my look at me. That drawing of the focus to him. If the essence, the manifestation of God's creation coming before him is equated to a sweet incense, a pleasant thing, a joy to God, then no wonder he wants prayer to be essential in the middle of what he's doing. No wonder prayer is a significant part of what he's going to go on and do, even if he's going to go on and do it anyway. What you can get from this about God, God is happy with what He's doing. You go through Psalm, you dig around in the Bible. You don't find God as a grumpy person. You find God is very happy and very excited about what He is doing in creation. This plan for all time that God is fulfilling is a good thing, is a pleasant thing to Him. And He has chosen that He will use our prayer your communion with him as one of the steps in what he is going to do because he likes it because he loves it he loves this communion with his creation prayer is god changing you not you influencing god second chronicles 7:14 if my people Called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. You see, you see that there's the identification, my people called by my name. You see the action. Humble yourselves, pray seek, turn, then God will, we know what God will do. God will do what you would expect God to do. God will have mercy. Then I'll hear from heaven. Forgive their sins. We know what God's going to do. We just need to pray. You know, we like to think, Of someone who's super religious and pious, praying long, eloquent, slow soliloquies to God. You think of Luke, I'm going to turn there. I think that's valuable to look at. Luke 18. Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortionists, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The tax collector, standing far off, Would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other man. For everyone who exalts himself himself, will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The fundamental difference between these two guys was the reason they're praying. One saw it as proof of his righteousness. And the other saw it as necessary. One went home justified. So, God takes your communication with Him very seriously. We fail to take the things of God serious because of our experience of God, sometimes, I think. So, you've never seen a preacher struck down in the middle of a bad sermon. You've never seen someone drop dead as soon as they touch the baptismal waters. Never seen someone choke on a cracker during communion. You're all going to be thinking about that here in a minute. Why? Why don't we see that now? Well, God is merciful. The ultimate sacrifice has been offered. The ball is in our court to be covered by the sacrifice of Christ and be able to stand before God or, or to suffer the judgment of God ultimately. But we take God's mercy and then we use it to make less the work of God till the reality of God has very, inf- very little influence on our lives, about one hour every seven days worth of influence before we slip off into the same habits that we always have. Totally unchanged. So we live in this era of grace and mercy where preachers aren't getting struck down, where it feels like sin is rampant. We know that it's because God is merciful in allowing people to come to Him. But I'm saying that using this mercy, the way that we see it, as it seeing it lessen the gravity of God, like, He's not going to get me, I can do what I want, is actually very counterintuitive to what's going on. Romans 6 He says, there's so much grace and mercy, should should we continue to sin? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, no. How can someone who is dead to sin still live in it? Even though we haven't seen people die from being unclean before God, we actually have much more reason to live drastically changed, more reason than the children of Israel did we have the mercy that they longed for they had the law they had priests getting zapped we don't have that fear hanging over us but we have so so much more we have a greater reason than they ever did we've experienced mercy we can come before him and we can have our perspective drawn to god in prayer because because of in jesus name he sees our covering He sees our sacrifice. We have way more privilege than any of the generations before us. We'll close with a quote that I found in one of the commentaries. At the brazen altar, the big altar outside where the sacrifice was offered, Christ died for us, shed His blood, reconciled us to God and made us forever secure in Him. But at the golden altar, he lives in heaven to intercede for those for whom He has already died and who are already saved. The brazen altar speaks of the death of Christ. The golden altar speaks of the living, resurrected, ascended Lord Jesus Christ. The two altars, therefore, speak of the death and the resurrection. And they constitute the full message of the gospel. The deadly work on the outside. Outside there in the courtyard where the death, where the sacrifice was made, where the blood runs, where the priests are dirty with blood. That must be done on the outside for the pleasant work on the inside to even be possible. Don't fail to be influenced by the reality of what God has done. Do not fail to be changed by this reality. What a slap in the face to God. Don't take advantage of His mercy and take full advantage of your pathway to stand before the God, before this living God, a position that people who in the past... Just being a little bit off, being a little bit wrong, standing before the symbolic throne of God would get zapped for. You realize the right, you realize the privilege of going literally before God. And not only just going before God, but being a pleasing thing to God. Not a nuisance, not an annoyance, but part of the pleasure that He gets in creation that you can come to Him through Christ. Be changed by that. Get a hold of the gravity of that. My goodness, it'll change your life. My goodness, there's not anything else in the world. Understand this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,